Good morning. Uh, good to be here together. Thankful to, to meet together in the house of the Lord to worship uh, and pray the Lord will uh, bless us as we reflect upon His Word and we consider its application in our lives together. Uh, appreciate the singing that has gone before and hope that our, our minds have followed along with those words and made them our own as we sing praises to His name and give Him thanks. want to discuss with you this morning for a little while the the mercy of God. Uh, we often think about mercy in terms of the forgiveness for sin, which is certainly what it is, and we talk about God's mercy, and in our minds we contextualize that as the forgiveness of sins that is in Jesus Christ and our eternal home in heaven that we certainly don't deserve. But the mercy of God is more than just that in our lives. Now, that's a great and wonderful thing. The thought of a home in heaven, a hope in Christ, through Christ, not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. But in order for us to live our lives as Christians and experience the sanctification that we've talked about the past couple of months, that mercy of God is something we must learn to depend on and trust every single day that we live. We don't need God's mercy only for the big things. We need God's mercy every moment, every hour of every day. Because regardless of the work that he's done in our spirits, bringing us to life in Christ, and regardless of the profession of faith that we've made and the obedience that we seek out in our lives, that we work out before him, we remain sinners before an august and glorious and holy God, and that requires his mercy every day. We want to find our opening text in the book of Lamentations, a familiar text to all of us, Lamentations chapter 3, is the prophet, one of the greatest prophets of God, who due to the circumstance and time of his birth and his advent among the nation of Judah, was doomed to a life of continual setbacks. Called of God a prophet from his mother's womb, Jeremiah was called at 12 years of age to go and begin to preach repentance to a nation that would not repent. The Lord called him and said, I've called you a prophet to the nations and you're called to tear down, to root up, to destroy. You're called to go and preach and the people will not hear you. And this was Jeremiah's lot in life. For more than 30 years, he proclaimed God's will to a people that would not hear, that turned aside and ultimately were carried away captive. And in that destroyed state, the city of Jerusalem in ruins, Jeremiah himself having spent some time in the bottom of a hole in a, in a dungeon, he looks out around the nation that he loves, the people that he loves for whom he's given his life, and he sees despair. And the book that was pinned down by the prophet is called Lamentations or Mourning. In the third chapter, uh, middle of the chapter here, verse 18, as he looks around, verse 17, Thou hast removed my soul far off from peace, I forgot prosperity. And I said, My strength and my hope is perished from the Lord, remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. My soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. He's in a very low state, and maybe some of us can relate to that from time to time. Following Jesus Christ and doing God's will is not always smiles and roses. It's not always something that's just a joyful experience to our natural flesh. In fact, quite the contrary. 
This was Jeremiah's experience. But in this moment, this down state, he says in verse 21, This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. This is where Christians live their lives. This is where believers live their lives. Waiting for the salvation of the Lord. Quietly waiting and hoping and trusting in a God whose faithfulness is great, greater than we can imagine, a God who is always faithful, can always be depended on, can always be trusted. That can't be said about any man. The greatest of men will let us down. And we can't trust ourselves because we disappoint time and time again. The Apostle Paul was a great man of God, a man called of God, sanctified by God, used of God. And yet, in the middle of his wonderful ministry, he writes the Roman letter, and in chapter 7, he says, I know to do good, but when I would do good, evil is present with me. I can't even do what I want to do. I find a war within my members. We need the mercy of God. And the subject of mercy, as it's dealt with in the Scripture, is always about a constant need, a constant desire. From the publican who cries out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Apostle Paul who begs his mercy. And the Apostle who says, I was set forth as an example of God's mercy. God's mercy in my life to show you God's merciful in your life. And the God who calls us is the God who abides with us. Ever forgiving, ever merciful. The book of Psalms is full of this concept, God, a God of mercy. Because in recounting the history of Israel, we find that God's mercy is needed every day. Time and again, as people stray aside from what they know is right. Psalm 85 begins, Lord, thou hast been favorable to thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Selah. God has taken away his wrath and he's forgiven the sin of his people. So verse 4 says, because of this, turn us, O God, of our salvation. The God who delivers, turn us. Cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thy anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. The prayer of God's people every hour is for mercy. And with mercy comes blessing. Because you see, we can't attain to God and to God's favor outside of his mercy. When God sees us, he has to see us in Jesus Christ or there's no benefits toward us. But how can God be merciful to me, a sinner? How can God's mercy be upon you? This psalm deals with this question. I will hear what the, what God the Lord will speak. For he'll speak peace unto his people and his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. 
righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The problem with understanding God's mercy is that God is a holy God. We read in the scripture that God is so holy, so righteous that he cannot look upon sin without judgment. But here we read righteousness and peace have kissed each other. God's justice requires, as the song says, a sinless obedience. But we don't find that sinless obedience in our lives. What we find is a continual stumbling through life. We know to do good, but evil's present with us. We want to do right, but we fall. And we continually come to God, the God of mercy, praising Him for His goodness, desiring His forgiveness and His love, desiring His empowering grace to pick us up from the dust and make us more than what we are. And the gospel provides exactly that answer, exactly that hope. Because God's mercies, they are new every morning. God is a God of faithfulness. And as Paul cries out at the end of that seventh chapter of Romans, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He's ready with an answer. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. That's where deliverance is. That's where salvation is. How can we find ourselves the, find in ourselves the strength to overcome? Well, we can't find it in ourselves, but we can find it in Him. Walking after His Spirit. Following His leadership. Following His guidance. And trusting Him. And trusting Him that when we fall, we will rise up again. He'll pick us up. He'll carry us. And through His Word, He will give us strength. Turning over to the 103rd Psalm. The psalmist writes and says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy distresses. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction. Who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so thy youth is renewed like an eagle's. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Why? Because God is so good. Because God is so merciful. He's acted so favorably toward me. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities and healeth all thy diseases, redeeming thy life from destruction. Again, as we said, this isn't a one-time need. This isn't a one-time thing. God finds us dead in sin. He gives us life in Christ. He picks us up and He sets us in a high place. But we can't stand in our own strength, in our own power, and go on our way as though we did it ourselves. We require His daily mercy, His daily forgiveness, His daily grace, because we daily carry about the body of this flesh. We carry about this carnality that weighs us down. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. God is merciful, we read in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. Not always chiding, not always keeping his anger. Not dealing with us after our sins. Verse 10, he hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. God, we read, is like a father who pities his children. So the Lord pitieth them that fear him. He knows our frame. He remembereth that we are 
dust. What I want us to understand this morning is that we stand daily in need of God's grace, His mercy, His love, and His power. We stand daily in need of God directing our paths. And that might seem seem obvious. We all know this, right? But do we always live like it? I fear the answer is absolutely not. Most of us, I think, struggle through life continually thinking, yes, Lord, I've got this now. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your deliverance. Thank you for your word. And I've now got this. And we begin to proceed in our own. And we fall. And we fall hard. We cry out for mercy. But before we can cry to God for mercy, we have to first understand our condition in sin. And that's an important need for all of us every day. Because again, we get this idea that we're cleaned up. Now we've talked before about how impossible it is for a natural man to even understand his desperate need of a Savior. By nature, we think we've got it together. We blame all our problems on someone else. We don't see sin in ourselves. We only see ourselves as victims. But when the Holy Spirit comes in our life and changes us and gives us a heavenly mind and the ability to comprehend truth, we look around and we say, Oh, Lord, I am a sinner. And that's what we see in that description of the two that went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee says, I've got it all together. I have no sin. And Jesus says, His sin remaineth. The publican says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, He went back to His home justified rather than the other. Time and again, in his interaction with the Pharisees in his day, Jesus said things like this. He says, the whole need not a physician. He says, I haven't come for the righteous, but for sinners, I've come to bring sinners. Jesus says to those Pharisees in John chapter 9, if, if you were blind, If you were blind, then there would be hope for you. But because you say that you see, then your blindness is going to remain. We need first to acknowledge our condition in sin. Acknowledge that we deserve nothing. Acknowledge that we have nothing to plead. When we come to God like that, we find God a merciful, forgiving and loving God. We come to God acknowledging our own sin, our own need, And we find in Jesus Christ salvation, deliverance, and hope. So it must begin there, but it must continue there. You see, the church of Jesus Christ is not a gathering of people who used to be sinners, but now they are saints and in no more need of forgiveness. No, we're a gathering of people who are laboring together to serve Jesus Christ, to follow Him, and to seek after Him in a life that's filled with troubles. We stumble and we fall. We need the forgiveness of our Savior. We need His love and we need one another to pick each other up, to carry each other through. The book of Galatians describes a church that is filled with pride in their attainments and and the goals that they've set and the patterns that they've lived and the rules that they've laid down. And Paul writes to them and he says, you are fallen from grace. You've forgotten your daily need of a Savior. And he says, this persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. What's the answer? Walk after the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Trust in the Spirit. See the fruit of the Spirit lived out in your lives. Be sanctified by a merciful, a loving, and a faithful God.
whenever we allow our concept of salvation to be limited in scope to that which places us secure in Christ and in heaven. And we forget the the aspects of that that interact with us daily in our lives. We forget our daily need of deliverance. We've truly forgotten the very essence of a Christian life. We've forgotten that which brings praise and glory to God in the church throughout all ages, world without end. We need to understand God's faithfulness, God's mercy interacts daily in the Christian life. The Apostle Paul understood this. He shared it with us time and time again. We talked about Romans chapter 7. Paul writes in the Hebrew letter, reminding them of the goodness, the mercy, the greatness of salvation through Jesus Christ, telling them to turn aside from the old ways, the things of the law, rejoice in the goodness that is found in Christ and His gospel. In the 12th chapter, we're all familiar with the admonition. Seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. A good friend of mine in the ministry, every time I talked to him for a while, would say, Brother, remember, don't quit. Well, that's what the message here is. Don't quit. Don't give up. Consider what Jesus Christ endured, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. You haven't yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as children, saying, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. The mercy of God is often revealed in a scourging, a whipping, a beating. It's revealed when God brings us to our knees, brings us down that we might... Be forced to look up, to see who He is, to see His greatness, His glory, to recognize our own weakness and our own sin. What a terrible thing it would be to be without chastisement, without the Lord's gentle touch reminding us of our dependence and need of Him. In Paul's letter to Titus, he speaks of the work of God in the lives of His children. He speaks of God's active work in our lives. He says in the end of the second chapter, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify to himself a peculiar people zealous of good works." These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. 
He goes on in the third chapter saying, put them in mind. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. He gives practical instruction, practical guidance. And then he says in verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice he says, he has shed this upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost daily renews, daily interacts, daily cleans up the lives of the people of God. He shows us a better path. He shows us direction. And he calls us to a life of obedience. One of the reasons that God has ordained the New Testament church as an instrument in the sanctification of His people, as an instrument in our lives to draw us near and keep us in the love of Christ is because we need to be reminded daily of our dependence on Him. We need to be held accountable to the truth of our profession, to the works that follow it. In Peter's epistle, 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Finally be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing you're thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? He admonishes us to good works, to righteous works, to doing what's right. And then he reminds us that Christ hath also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. He says, Jesus Christ has purchased this for us. For as much then as Christ hath suffered, this is the fourth chapter, verse 1, for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. He says you've been called to live a different way, to walk a different way, to live with a new mind, the mind of Jesus Christ. And the world's going to think you're strange. They're going to question your behavior. But recognize this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober and watch unto prayer. Have charity one toward another. The reality is that we live in perilous times. We live in a society that is desperately wicked. And that should be no surprise. A society is made up of people. But we've been given an understanding. We've been given direction. And we've been given the Spirit of God to direct our walk, to direct our paths, and to enable us to overcome when we are tempted. 
But how do we find this strength? How do we find this grace? We find it through the mercy of an almighty God. Despair sets in quickly in the house of the Lord. People who seem to be examples of the faith, who seem to have a solid hold on the truth of the gospel and a dependence on Jesus Christ in a moment can be cast down and turned aside. Discouragement abounds around us. We see decline among the house of God. We see churches declining in numbers. We we see people's walks turned aside to the things of the world. While professing Christ, they're living as though they don't know Him. And discouragement sets in. It abounds. What then? We look up. We look beyond ourselves. We look beyond the momentary cares of this world. And we see a God who rules, a God who reigns. Great is thy faithfulness, our text said. And God is faithful. He's faithful to all generations. He's a God who doesn't change. And a God who isn't surprised by our inadequacies, our weakness, our sin. God didn't call you because he thought you could live without sin. He didn't call you because he needed you for something you brought to the table. No, this is all put aside by the truth of God's nature, character, and the word of the gospel. God called you for his own peculiar purpose, for his own pleasure. He called you to walk in a new way, and he empowers you with his grace to fulfill it. The prophet says, I was cast down. I was discouraged. I was ready to give up hope. But then I recalled to my mind. I recalled to my mind that it's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. Remember who you were when God called you. Remember, you had nothing to bring to God. The apostle reminds the Corinthian church of that in this way. He talks about how puffed up they are, how excited they are about who they are and what they've done and what they're going to do. He says, what hast thou that thou didst not receive? So why are you boasting about it? Sometimes we need to be cast down so that we can be lifted up, so that we can look up and see him as he is. We fall down and we cry out to God for mercy. We beg his mercy. We beg his presence. We say with the psalmist David, Lord, I need you. I need your word more than I need food to eat. We cry out for deliverance and restitution, a building back of that which is lost. Psalm 103 again says, He knows our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. It's important in our interactions with God for us to remember that he knows us better than we know ourselves. We're so given to trying to be more than we are, to project this image that we've got it together, to project this image that we, we're in control, to project this image that we're better than we are, but God knows exactly who I am. 
He knows what's going on in the back of my mind while my mouth's moving and, and false words are coming out. He knows what I desire when I profess to desire only Him. He knows that I am only dust. He made us. He is our maker. He knows us intimately. We can't hide from God. We can't deceive God. So what are we left with? Dependence on His mercy. We need His forgiveness. We need His love. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So what are we? Verse 15 says, As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. The wind passeth over it, and it's gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. I love how this psalm really puts things in perspective, puts us in our place. He says, man is here today, gone tomorrow. And most men, no one even remembers they were there. That's what men are. Is that what we're going to trust in, place our confidence in? Certainly not. The contrast, verse 17, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, his righteousness unto children's children. We're called to hope in something more than ourselves and more than what we can do. We're called to hope in more than the righteousness that we're able to cobble together. Because as Isaiah the prophet says, our righteousnesses, all of them, there is filthy rags. There is nothing. There is refuse. But the mercy of the Lord needed for that lack of righteousness, it's from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. The question for us is, is this us? Do we fear him? Do we acknowledge him? Do we reverence his holy name? His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. His righteousness to all generations, to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, to those that remember his commandments to do them. The Lord has prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. The psalm here says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise His name. And if we can be found praising Him every day of our existence, if we can be found crying out to Him for mercy and grace, if we can be found seeking His truth and His word and pursuing it, then all of these promises, they are for us and our children. There for generations to come because God is that good, that holy, that righteous. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening to the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord for His mercy. His mercy endureth forever. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. Slow to anger. Why are we afraid to come to the Lord in our need? Are we afraid of His anger? Afraid of disappointment? Afraid of wrath? Perhaps. But again, He knows who we are. He knows what we are. It's like a child who breaks the law of his parent and is afraid to acknowledge it. 
gets tied up in knots, lying and saying they didn't do something that everyone knows that they did. And the parent knows what they did, but the parent loves that child. The parent's already forgiven that child. But the child doesn't know it, and the child is afraid to acknowledge what they've done and compounds one sin with another and another and another. Till finally they're tied up in knots and they can do no more, and they say, yes, yes, I did it. And confession is made. And the parent embraces the child commends them for finally, finally acknowledging and telling the truth, communicates their love to that child. That's what a merciful God does. God's not surprised by anything in this world that he created. He created the world for his glory. And he delivers his people for the same purpose. Brethren, the gospel comes into our lives and calls us to faith in Jesus Christ, to understand the work of the Lord in our hearts, to understand what life in Christ is. And the gospel gives us hope, hope that though we are sinners, we have a Savior. And though we are in need of mercy, mercy abounds in Him. And that's mercy that will carry us to the end of days. Mercy that will carry us to the conformity with Jesus Christ in heaven itself. Mercy that is new every morning. Sometimes we say, I can't go to God with this sin because I've gone to Him with it so many times before. Ever find yourself making promises to God? Lord, if you'll deliver me, I'll never do this again. And then tomorrow you find yourself doing the very thing. You know, sometimes we, we see God in that way, like, like some kind of an emergency kit to deliver us when we get ourselves in trouble and we start depending on Him for that. So, so we just make the same mistakes over and over again, counting on His forgiveness and counting on Him putting it all back together. And as a merciful Father, sometimes He doesn't respond the way we hope that He will. You know, the Apostle Paul was plagued with what he describes as a messenger from Satan, sent to buffet him, to torment him, to distract him from what he needed to be doing. And Paul, walking with the Lord, thought, well, I'll pray to God and he'll deliver me from this thorn. And three times he besought the Lord, saying, Lord, deliver me from this thorn in my flesh, this this messenger of Satan. Give me grace to overcome it. And put it behind me. And after three times of fervent prayer on the subject, the apostle says that the Lord spoke to him. And the Lord didn't answer the prayer exactly the way he hoped. Instead, the Lord said this. The Lord said, My grace is sufficient unto thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. If we could live our lives without a daily dependence on God, then we wouldn't be bringing God any glory in our lives. Everything we accomplish, we'd be able to say, I did that. And everything that we did would bring glory to our name and not His. But that's not our purpose in Christ, and that's not what He's called us for. He says, my strength is made perfect in weakness or through weakness. And you and I, we've been called as weak individuals. 
we're in need of his strength, of his power and his grace. So the mercy of God is new every morning. His grace is sufficient unto us. We are helpless dependents on the grace and mercy of an almighty God. But you know, the Apostle Paul says that we are able to go boldly to his throne of grace. We are able in Jesus Christ to march boldly to the throne of God's grace. To cry out to him in prayer and supplication. And there we find grace to help in time of need. You know, so often our problem is we fail to realize how desperate our condition is. What our need is. The grace is there. The mercy is there. God's throne is there and we have access to Him through Jesus Christ our Lord. And yet so often we fail to avail ourselves of that access because we don't realize our desperate need. Again, we think in our pride, I've got this. And it's only when we're too far down the path we realize we've strayed. We realize we can't handle it. But it's never too late to turn back, to turn back to him, to look to him. And in him we find grace, we find mercy, we find forgiveness and love. And that is the pattern of the New Testament and Old Testament scripture. One of the reasons why God has given us insight in the lives of so many of his followers throughout the ages is to see their mistakes, their baubles, and to learn from it and to become stronger through their example. David was a king, a man after God's own heart, a man called of God, delivered, sustained, prepared of God. He ascended the throne and it was the peak of his power and opportunity to praise God. And in that moment, he was led away by temptation. And in a moment, he fell. He fell hard. He fell fast. He fell in sin. Committing adultery, fornication, murder, a cover-up, So much evil in such a short time by such a good man. And he cries out to God for mercy. Psalm 53 recounts his grief, his acknowledgement of his own weakness, his own sin, his own pride, his dependence on God. Cleanse me. Purge me. Make me clean again. The Apostle Peter The greatest of the apostles in influence and name recognition, outspokenness. The man used of God on the day of Pentecost to preach the gospel to the conversion of 3,000 souls. And yet time and again, Peter denies the power, the person, the glory of Christ. His greatest moment when he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. A moment later, Jesus says to him, Get behind me, Satan. For you savor not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Peter says, Lord, I'll never deny you. Jesus says, actually, tonight you'll deny me three times. Peter says, Lord, I'll defend you. No harm will come to you. Jesus says, put away your sword. You don't understand what you're doing. He saw the crucifixion, learned of the resurrection, sat with Jesus, walked with Jesus on the seashore. As Jesus says, Peter, 
Lowest thou me more than these? Three times Peter says, Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. You think, well, now he's got it. He's got it all together, right? A few years later, he travels to Antioch to see the work of God there. And there he separates from the Gentile believers. He pretends that Christ has never come to purchase salvation for them. And the Apostle Paul withstands him to the face. Why? Because he was wrong. We have example after example of the grace and mercy of God. In the first epistle of Paul to Timothy, he writes of his own experience, his own calling. He says, beginning in verse 8, But we know the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the gospel the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. He says, I am but a pattern, an example of every believer. But notice how bold he is in saying, this is why I obtained mercy. You see, he says God has a reason for everything he does. And it's for this cause that I obtained mercy. I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. He says, I'm a pattern for you. And everything we see in his life, we see this pattern, we see this example. And he reveals so much of himself that we can identify with. Because we have something in common. We're all sinners. We all struggle. But by God's grace, if born of the Spirit of God, we all have Christ attending us. We all have his Spirit working in us. Now unto the King eternal, immortal and invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why is God's mercy abounding even to me? Why is God's mercy accessible and why is His throne available for you and me? It's for Him to gain glory. Throughout all ages, world without end, it's for Him to receive glory in a people who understand what it is to sin, what it is to be destitute, what it is to have nothing, 
but to depend upon the glory, the mercy, the kindness, the love of a righteous and holy God. Paul says, for this cause I obtain mercy, to be a pattern to others, that God might be glorified. And if that's our desire, that God would be glorified in me, that God would be glorified in you, it's going to break away all of those walls that we build up. All of those projections that we establish of strength, of power, of righteousness. We're going to be broken before a righteous God. We're going to cry out for mercy. And that daily dependence on Him, that daily seeking of His presence, of His forgiveness... It's going to characterize our lives and it's going to make us vulnerable one to another. It's going to enable us to look over one another for good and not for evil. It's going to enable us to bear one another's burdens considering ourselves lest we also be tempted. It's going to enable us to unite together in prayer. Prayer that God would use us for His glory. Prayer that God would bring His people to repentance that He would turn His people to Him. And it's going to build a confidence that God is at work. Not just in the world at large, but in my life, in your life. In our congregations, in our gatherings together, in our community. That God is working for His glory. Working to turn us to Him. And we'll have that confidence. That confidence that His people will hear. That his people will be changed. They will be turned. And that we ourselves, though we are nothing in ourselves, though we have no hope in ourselves, in Jesus Christ we have all the hope in the world. And in Jesus Christ we have obtained the victory. And we will overcome. Overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Overcome through his love through His mercy, through His grace. And that's an overcoming that begins today and continues into eternity. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know that tomorrow, living in the presence of God and depending upon the mercy of God, we will overcome and His name will be magnified. That's what Paul brought his confidence into his letter to the Philippians. He says, I'm in a strait between two, whether to depart and be with God, which is far better, or whether to remain here with you, which is more needful to you. But he says it's a win-win situation for me. Because to be dead in the body is to be present with the Lord. And what could be better than that? But to live here, to serve here, to love here is to serve God and to fulfill His purpose and His calling in my life. And that too is a glorious and great thing to do. We've been called by the grace of Almighty God. Called out of a life of sin. Called into a life of righteousness. Called out of dependence on ourselves into dependence on Jesus Christ. And called... To let go of the carnality of our flesh. That which is puffed up, which exalts ourselves, 
to be broken and weak and dependent upon the God who is all-powerful, upon His Spirit which lives in us, which works in us. And in Him, we're told there is no condemnation. There is no fear. No fear of condemnation. Why? Because it's Christ who died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Because the love of God is such that He spared not His own Son, but gave Him up freely for us all. How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Yes, we are beggars. Beggars poor. But we are at mercy's door. And we come boldly to His throne and there find grace to help in times of need. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, we ask Your forgiveness for our sin that we daily commit against Thee. We ask Your forgiveness for that which exalts our own flesh and our own pride. And Father, ask that You would humble us before You that we might see our weakness, our dependence, and our need. And Father, in doing so, You might be highly exalted before us. We ask that You would work in us for Your glory, that You would work in us uh, for our good. And Father, whatever that means in terms of our our experience in life, our earthly cares, we ask, Father, that You would give us a soul dependence and trust in You and that You would make us willing to endure all things for the sake of, of Your Son and our Savior and for the Gospel's sake. Father, I ask that you would take your word, that you would apply it to our hearts and minds, that you would cause us to to be dependent upon uh, your word and and the revelation of it. Father, that you would make us uh, fit servants, and uh, Father, that you would make us examples of believers. We ask that you would work in the lives of your people in this community, and Father, that you would bring them to your truth, that you would cause your gospel to be proclaimed from this place in the lives of of each one who congregates here, that we would daily be brought more fully into obedience to your word and more fully dependent upon it. Father, we ask that you would cause us, uh, as recipients of your mercy and grace, to extend mercy and grace to others, that we would uh, would forgive others as... uh, You, for Christ's sake, have forgiven us. Father, we ask that you would enable us from this day forward to live our lives in the light of your word. And, Father, with a daily dependence and trust upon you. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love and your power, your glory. And, Father, for revealing yourself in us. And we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.